Open the precious Word of God with me to the ninth chapter of Romans, and let us take up three verses there that put us in our proper place as men, and put Him in His proper place as our Creator and Potter and our God. What a passage is before us. The Apostle, our brother Paul, our beloved brother Paul, will prove the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty from the nature and authority of God himself, from theology, the science of God. Brother Jerry, thank you for your prayer for us all this morning and for your love of the sovereign God that arrested you like he arrested me. I know that you know and you know that I know what he's done to both of us. And we owe Him our lives. I read to you verses 19 through 21 of Romans 9. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Amen and amen. Amen. The apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with five questions, will teach us the positive lesson that God is sovereign in the reprobation of men, which he taught us and declared it and illustrated it in verses 17 and 18, which we covered last Sunday. When men question election because they do not understand it or they will not submit to it, We simply fall back on revelation. And the apostle falls back on revelation here. Though he does not quote directly, he uses a passage in Isaiah 45 and verse 9 that the Jews would have understood about God being the potter. We don't question things and we don't ask, how could it be? We believe it. We want to have Abraham's faith in this matter like Abraham had faith in the declaration of God that he was going to father a son through Sarah when both of them were biologically, reproductively dead. He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And when we read that therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will, he hardeneth. We believe it and we don't try to figure it out. And we don't try to get all of our explanation, our questions answered. And we don't try to be able to explain it to others. We declare it by the revelation of God and we don't rationalize about it. The apostle didn't. And he arms us, and he teaches us how we should humble ourselves before God and how we should prepare ourselves to answer others on subjects like this. I had to fight a battle for the sovereignty of God over all things, and I mean a gnat jumping from one spot on an animal to another. And I mean whether you brushed your teeth last night before you went to bed or you didn't. About 30 years ago, when my faith in the matter was put to the test, and here's where I found my chief refuge. And here's where I was able to take up the sword of the Spirit with these words right here. A few, a very few of you may know what I refer to and it's not worth talking about because it involves me. But if it involves the Lord, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about it. I love these verses. The question comes up, 
Where does man's responsibility fit in with the sovereignty of God? That's what these three verses are about. And the apostle does not try to help that poor person that wants to get the responsibility of man worked in. The apostle just blows him off and is questioned as being out of line, inappropriate, and not worthy from the dust of the earth to the creator of the universe. And I love that approach to theology. There are too many men speculating on supralapsarianism and sublapsarianism and infralapsarianism and all the other Sarianisms they want to invent. And if you don't know what those words are, go home and stick them in a Google search box. And if you need me to spell it for you, I will. But we don't go there. Right. And I'll, I'll have occasion to say more about that. We don't go there because the apostle didn't go there. Amen. Do you know where the apostle went? Who are you? Clay does not argue with the potter. Shut up. If you want a thorough study of God's sovereignty that goes into it in depth, then go on our website and look up the dominion of God. And you can read to your heart's content. By the grace of God, someone tried to plumb the entire Bible and pull up every aspect of the dominion of God over men, angels, and chance events, inanimate matter, and everything in the universe and put it together in a form for you to read. And it's there on our website. The dominion of God. Amen. We just have three verses in front of us. Thou wilt say then unto me, the apostle being the great logician that he was, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, often posed questions and then answered them for the benefit of what he knew by inspiration would be the natural objections or skepticism of a natural man or of a believer not trained well or taught well yet. And so here he poses a question or two in the 19th verse, and then he answers them by three more questions in the 20th and 21st verses. Thou wilt say then unto me, Paul knew that men would question the sovereignty of God, and especially would they question the sovereignty of God when it involved the rejection of men. The first question that popped up that the apostle dealt with is found in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? The Holy Spirit chose to put that question there after the apostle had declared that there was an election within the nation of Israel and then having illustrated it by Abraham's sons and Rebekah's twins. And so the question might come up at that point of election God choosing one and rejecting seven of Abraham's sons. God choosing one twin, Jacob, and loving him. And God rejecting the other twin, Esau, and hating him. Some would say or question that that's unrighteous. Paul's answer to them was, God forbid. No way. Not knowing the God of the Bible. He said, He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. Mercy is entirely the prerogative of God, and he gives it to whom he will, and he withholds it from whom he will, because he owes it to none. Then in case they were still thinking about Esau having been left out, Mercy and compassion being positive blessings of the positive aspect of God's sovereignty called election. In case, just like Proverbs 16.4, in case you're wondering when it says the Lord made all things for himself, did he make the evil, the wicked for the day of evil? So the, the, uh, the wise preacher of Israel wrote, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. So in case they were worried about poor Esau, the apostle writes in those 17th and 18th verses, even for this same purpose, have I raised up Pharaoh, 
that I might get my name glorified and magnified over him in his life. And everyone knew what happened to Pharaoh. He was destroyed with his army, his firstborn, and the riches of Egypt. And then he concludes again as a conclusion in verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, showing that mercy is not obtained by the will of man, nor by the efforts of men. Then the conclusion is in verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, restating the positive side of election. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Stating the negative side of election, which is reprobation or rejection. And I mentioned these things to you last Lord's Day on how men don't want to even use the word reprobation or reprobate. Though reprobate is found in the Bible, you can go find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Reprobation is another word for rejection. So the question is, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God, as you are teaching us, Paul, in verses 17 and 18, if God's will is responsible for the hardening of man, if God exercises his will and the result is men being hardened, how can God punish them for being hardened? Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If Pharaoh rejected Moses and ten plagues, plus one sign on the front end, plus a sign on the back end of piled up water, if Pharaoh rejected those things from the Lord, how can he be punished for them, since you've just told us that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart? This is the question. How can God send someone to hell if he didn't elect them? How can God send someone to hell if he rejected them? If God turns someone over to their sins and hardens their heart in iniquity so that they will not repent, how can he punish them? And so you might be thinking to yourself, the question sounds good. I would like to know the answer to that question. While I may give you a little taste, that isn't the text. Right. And any little taste I give you of the answer, which can be found by knowing all the scriptures, I go beyond the text. And I love sticking with the text, especially in a place like this. Because if I were to answer your first question, knowing your wicked and deceitful, rebellious little heart, you will have a second question. And if I answer the second question, you will come up with a third. Because you will keep questioning God until you have stuck him in a box that fits your thinking. That's right. And all God wants us to do is fit ourselves in the box of how we ought to think. Amen. And that's right here in this text. I understand the question, and I believe you understand the question, and it's a it's a usual, typical scorners or skeptics question. What about the responsibility of man? Men arrogantly think that God's sovereignty has to be reconciled with the responsibility of man. They cannot imagine a creator God with the authority that's described here. They can only think, what about me? You must consider me in your decisions that affect me. You have to consider... Pharaoh in the decisions that affect him. If you hardened his heart, how can you punish him when you hardened his heart? I will remind you that in chapter 1, our beloved brother Paul, and this is your taste, and be content with it. I'm putting in parentheses this comment, these comments to the jury. But we're making no judgment at all. God's already made the judgment. He's made the revelation and we're to submit to it. He's ruled. The judge has spoken. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul told us that God has made his truth manifestly plain and they all understood it so that they are without excuse. In Romans chapter 5, he said that we all have a federal head that was ten times smarter than Pharaoh and only had one commandment to keep and it was not a costly one at all. It was not like letting three million people go who were the majority of your workforce for building your principal cities. 
That was a big decision. Adam just had a little one, and Adam blew it. And Romans chapter 5 told us that in Adam, we are all guilty and under condemnation. Don't you dare let your wicked soul or anyone else accuse God of being unrighteous that men don't have a chance if reprobation is true. Men had their chance in Eden. Men had their chance in Adam. Men have their chance in the natural creation. Men have their chance in in providence of God. Men have their chance in conscience taught to us in Romans chapter 2. And men have their chance in revelation of the God of heaven through the preaching of his word. Right. And he doesn't owe them any more than the first one if he owes them that one in Eden. That's all I'm going to say because I want to stick with the text. I want to stick with just how the Apostle Paul answers someone asking questions like that. I will say this, though. There is no theology or soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, taught among men that reconciles the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man like we preach and believe in this church. We reconcile the two perfectly. God is absolutely, completely, totally, and finally sovereign in granting eternal life to wicked, condemned sinners. They are entirely passive in every aspect of those four phases of salvation because it is God that chose them before the world began when they had no existence. It is Christ that died for them as a substitute before they had any existence. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates them according to His own will like the wind blows and it's the power of God through the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the trump of God that will raise them from the dead and glorify them incorruptibly. That is the sovereignty of God absolutely without modification. We don't varnish any aspect of it. We don't try to clean it up. It's of God. Salvation is of the Lord. In the fourth phase of salvation, God works in us mightily. By working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And it is our responsibility to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And by working it out, we can then lay claim to eternal life. We can lay hold of eternal life. 1 Timothy 6.12 and 19. We can lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come. We can make our calling and election sure. We can know, brethren beloved, your election of the Lord because of performance, faith with works added to it. There is no doctrine that puts so much emphasis on the works of man except those who deny the sovereignty of God. And there is no one that puts so much emphasis on the sovereignty of God except those who deny man any responsibility at all. And they're called fatalists. And among the primitive Baptists, they're called absoluters. We reconcile the two. Our responsibility is not a condition, an instrument, a means, or assistance or cooperative effort with God's sovereign power in election, justification, regeneration, and glorification. Our responsibility is for the comfort of our hearts, the assurance of our hearts, making our calling and election sure, and proving that we have eternal life. And we are entirely responsible to perform. And if we do not perform, there is no evidence. And so both are maximized. We, we have no evidence, we have no hope that God's electing grace and Christ's sacrificial death and the Holy Spirit's powerful regeneration and their mutual glorification in the end is ours unless we believe and obey. Everyone that we know, for the most part, and I speak 99.9% of Christianity, every, most everyone that we know, for the most part, rejects what I just said because it involves God's sovereign, unconditional election, and it involves man's performance. And they hate, listen, they all want to talk about man's responsibility, but none of them want to put the emphasis on works, but the New Testament puts on works. And if you need more help on that one, go look up an outline on our website called Salvation by Works. Why call ye me Lord? And do not the things that I say. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. Mm 
Have we not? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Add to your faith virtue. We're the only ones that emphasize the responsibility of man, short of those who deny the sovereignty of God altogether. We're the only ones that emphasize the sovereignty of God and include the responsibility of man. The explanation is ended. You should already know those things, but I want to remind you of them. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? How can he fault Pharaoh? How can he fault Pharaoh for driving his chariot down to the Red Sea? And how can he punish him for driving his chariot down into the Red Sea? And how can he drown him? And how can he take the chariot wheels off and leave the poor man down there when it was God's will that chose to harden him? Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Pharaoh couldn't resist his will. Why did God punish him? It was God's will that hardened Pharaoh. Why is God still finding fault with Pharaoh? Let's get that question worked up. Let's get it worked up. Let's make it make as much sense as we can make it make sense. And you know what? We all have that question inside us. And if you don't have that question inside of you, it's by the grace of God and His Word that's blown it out of our hearts because that's what you would have by nature. We don't want a sovereign like this dealing with us. We want one that we can manipulate. We want one that we can influence and change. If God hardened Pharaoh according to his will, why can he fault him for what he did with that hardened heart by the will of God? So they ask. You know, the apostle has already dealt with questions like this in Romans 3, but for the sake of time, I'm not even going to go there. I hope you remember that in the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3, there were four questions posed and four questions answered, and they were right along these lines. One of the questions was popping up in verse 5, If my unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, how in the world can he punish me? And Paul just said, well, then how shall God judge the world? Implied, you idiot. Right. Then how shall God judge the world? You say you're speaking unkindly and you're putting words in Paul's mouth he would never say. Really? Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul's preaching away on the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, He poses the question by a man that would say, well, what kind of a body do we get then if there's a resurrection of the body? And you know what his answer was? Thou fool. See, a question like that is a foolish and unlearned question. That is not somebody that wants the resurrection of the body established to them by the proof of of Scripture or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They want to satisfy the curiosity of their wicked souls. Who cares what body we get as long as we believe there's a resurrection of the body. What was happening at Corinth was they were denying the resurrection of the body and they were justifying their denial of the resurrection of the body because they didn't have all their little questions answered. Well, I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have examples like Abraham who did not try to figure out how he was going to become potent in his old age, and that is at a 100 years of age or 99 when he conceived Isaac, nor did he worry about how that dried up little thing in Sarah called her once womb was going to come back to life again and carry a child for nine months and give birth to it. And how her dried up paps were going to give that child suck. He didn't worry about any of that. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. We're going to give glory to God right now as we work our way into the 20th verse. But we want to set up that question. Who hath resisted his will? God's will was stated six times. In verses 9, in verses 15 and 18 of this ninth chapter, controlling both his mercy and his hardening. I will have, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. There's two of them. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There's two of them. And therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will he hardeneth. In verse 18, there's two more. There's six at least declarations of the will of God. Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? If the will of God is as extensive as you are saying, Paul. If the will of God can reach into the nation of Israel and make some the Israel of God and make others the rejected Israel, if he can reach into Abraham's eight sons and pick one and reject seven, if he can pick between Rebekah's two twins, and if he can look at Pharaoh and harden his heart and cause him to go into the Red Sea and then punish him for it, how can he fault those who do what his will, his purpose they would do? 
we believe there are two wills of God. This is in parentheses again. We believe there are two wills of God because of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things of God are those things that he has purposed in himself that he is going to do and that we are going to do under his direction, control, and sovereignty. And the revealed things, the things he has written down are revealed to us by creation, conscience, providence, or scripture that we are supposed to do. We and our children are to take the word of God and apply ourselves to it. We are responsible for that revealed will of God. We are not responsible for the secret will of God at all. And he doesn't even show it to us until some of it's revealed by time and unless he sends his prophets to tell us about it in advance. Because the secret things belong unto him. Parentheses closed. Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Right. You say, he just asked two questions. All I'm doing is asking questions. Do you know how many times I've run into that in my life? I'm just, I just want to ask some questions. You know what Paul told Timothy? I'm going to say it again. I know when I repeat myself. Avoid foolish and unlearned questions, for they gender strife and they confuse men and they lead to more ungodliness. The apostle is not only going to humble us in these three verses, he is going to prepare us, he's going to arm us, and he's going to teach us how we ought to answer objections that arise in our own hearts and objections that others throw at us. And you should be able to measure a wise, learned, humble, respectful question from one that is unlearned and foolish. Now notice that the apostle identifies these two questions which he posed by the Spirit as reflecting our hearts as replying against God. Replying. Well, where did God speak? Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Is God speaking? And you asking questions about it is replying against Him. If Abraham had said, Lord, I'm going to be very polite for all you polite ones. How is Willie going to get up to the task? He didn't ask any questions like that. Because to do so is to reply against God. Now, do you remember that Sarah laughed and that Abraham laughed? But the Lord forgave them both. And boy, when Sarah laughed, God immediately said, why did Sarah laugh? I didn't laugh. Oh, she was in the presence of the holy God of heaven. And we are in the presence of the holy God of heaven. And when he says, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth, we don't question it. We submit to it. I've already given you some parentheses. About three. No way, mere man! Who do you think you are to question God? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Instead of God forbid, like the apostle used back in verse 14, Paul did not even acknowledge that they deserved that short of an answer. He didn't even say God forbid. He just said, your question and you are out of line and not in that order. Nay, but, O man, who art thou? Forget the question. Let's think about the questioner. Nay, but, O man, who art thou? That repliest against God. I'm not angry except that rebellious, wicked spirit of each one of us and our race that raises its ugly voice and its thinking against the God of heaven. You don't need your questions answered. You need to learn some humility, some reverence, and some worship for the God of heaven. You need to exalt Him and put Him up higher and get yourself lower, and all of a sudden you won't have questions. The only question you'll have is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Amen. That's a fitting question. Nay, but, O man, notice that there are no words to soften the doctrine of reprobation. Do you understand that? There is nothing there to explain, to modify, to varnish, to make pretty, to make palatable, to make acceptable the doctrine that God rejects whom he will reject. There's not a word. 
Not a syllable. None. None of, oh, you misunderstood. When you ask, when you ask, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Let me explain to you the two wills of God. I have been kind to you in departing from the text three times already, and I have only done it because my purpose is to teach the whole counsel of God, and yet while I'm in this text, I want to stick to what Paul did because there is wisdom and learning in it for all of us. Amen. Amen. I love these verses. Amen. They saved Brother Jerry at a point in his life. These verses just come... If, you, if you'll just hum- humble yourself before these verses and submit to them, they answer all the questions. Amen. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's God, we're the creature. He's the creator. We're dust. He's the infinite spirit of eternity. He inhabits eternity. And we're dust of the earth. And he had to breathe into our nostrils the breath of life. And it just takes a clothespin, if some of you can remember that thing. A clothespin upon your nose to end your life. Man was taken from the dust of the earth, and the last thing he should do is argue with his Creator. Those that like to question such things should consider who they are, and that they will never have all their answers. Because God expects us to fall back by faith, humility, submission upon His revelation. He doesn't have to explain it all. Who art thou that repliest against God? You know what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5? He said, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let thy words be few. Now that was a man that God had dealt with rather graciously and given him many blessings, but he still warned us, when we go into the house of God, guard our mouths. Don't question God, just praise Him. Exalt Him. Tell of His excellent greatness. Rather than answering the question, Paul just blew the questioner and his question off. I love that. I love it. Thank you, Lord. Look at Isaiah 45, 9. If, if someone wants to argue and ask questions, then, then they can go find themselves another piece of broken pottery because that's all they are. I've taught you this before and I've shown you this text before, but we need to see it right now. Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Is that what's being done in Romans 9.19? Right. Who, and 20 said, Who art thou that repliest against God? That striving with his maker. The made thing, a thing that is formed, does not argue with him that forms it. It's ridiculous. The whole concept is ridiculous. This is the Apostle Paul reducing an argument to its ridiculous nature very quickly and showing us that's how we ought to reason. Don't try to find a collection of facts to make a person happy with reprobation. Just show them this is what the Bible says. Right. Isaiah 45, 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd Strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? If you want to strive and ask questions about God's election and God's reprobation, then go find yourself another broken piece of pottery because God's telling you, you are a broken piece of pottery and you might as well go find another idiot that's a broken piece of pottery and the two of you can sit and discuss what you think is fair for God to do in the universe. But don't strive with Him. Shall the clay say to Him that fashioneth it, Hey, you just made a man without any hands. Well, what if God wants to make a man without any hands or with two eyes that don't work? And so the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they meet this man at the age of 30, and he's been blind from birth, and they say, who did sin? Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. This is for the glory of God. Amen. 
Praise God. This is the God I worship. Do you brothers still worship the same God with me? God changed my life when I was... Reading Daniel chapter 4 is like absolute music to my ears. It's the tinkling of the most beautiful instrument ever made to read those words. I begged Sherry to try to help me last night, and her memory is as feeble as mine. She's a wonderful wife. But her memory is as feeble as mine. Is When did I first read Daniel chapter 4 with understanding? Because it was somewhere between 17 and 20. And I love that God so much. And I love Nebuchadnezzar praising Him. And I love verses like this, which were introduced to me during in that three-year period by a little weaseled-up old man who never talked to a single person in that church. As soon as the amen was said, he would bolt straight out the back door first and get in his car and wait for his wife. But for some reason, he wanted me to read the sovereignty of God, the death of death and the death of Christ, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination and God's Will, Man's Will, and Free Will. Four books. Why in the world would he pick theological works for Johnny Motorcycle? What in the world? That is craziness. I outlined them by hand. I still have it. Because all of a sudden I met the Most High that ruleth in the kingdom of men Amen. like Nebuchadnezzar did and I loved extolling him. And if you think two psalms is too much this morning, you should see my note paper trying to get it down to two because I wanted to work through all the 90s with you. And just bless the Lord because he reigns. I believe this verse right here and I don't want to argue with him or bark with him at anything. He's been so good to me. But if he weren't good to me, and if he sent my soul to hell, His righteous law approves it well. And if sudden vengeance should seize my breath, I will pronounce him just in death. Don't forget those verses right there. We have to go back. Isaiah 45, 9 and 10. Come back to Romans chapter 9 with me. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it? The logic is simple enough. Should made things argue with their maker? Should created things argue with their creator? Should dust argue with the creator? Paul didn't spend, and I repeat myself again, that's how learning takes place. Paul did not spend a single word to soften the doctrine of reprobation. He declared it, and then questions that would seem rather ordinary and rather logical that were asked, he blew off the questions and the questioner. God is greater than man. As Elihu told Job, did Job ever have questions like this? Job was a good man. Is Job one of the five great men of the Bible? Amen. Did Job have some problems in the book of Job with why God was treating him that way? Mm-hmm. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? What power had come to bear in Job's life? It was the power of the devil by whose will? By the will of God. And Job got a little self-righteous and a little defensive and a little proud about all of his godliness. And Elihu had to come along that young man and in chapter 33 and verse 12, Elihu said, I will tell you the answer to the whole problem. God is greater than man. Amen. And then he, he works up a little bit about, he says, suffer me to speak a little bit more on behalf of my maker. And he goes on and he speaks some more about the great God of heaven and he gets to the 36th chapter and he said, you have justified the wicked in the way that you have responded to God's sovereignty in your life and you better humble yourself and repent or God's going to kill you. God's going to take you away. If you had humbled yourself and had taken the attitude of Romans 9, 20 and 21, you would already be sitting back at your table eating fatness. This is Job 36. I believe it's, well, I'll, I'll help you. It's verses 16 through 18. But now don't go reading the Bible on me and Job when I'm preaching Romans to you. I know Job 36 is exciting. And so is 35, 4, 3, 2. And 7 through 41 are God speaking, so it even gets better. But, but Elihu told Job, 
if you would have responded this way, that God is greater than man and just humbled yourself underneath it, you'd already have your stuff back and be enjoying fatness. (laughs) Even Job can ask some bad questions like, come on down and reason with me about my righteousness. Brethren, this is a practical lesson we're to learn from a passage like this. Let's not reason that way with the Lord. Don't let me hear out of anyone's mouth, Lord, why'd you take my wife? Why'd you take my husband? Why'd you take my children? Why'd you take my parents? Why'd you take my job? Why'd you take my health? Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. He hath no hands. You just bless God that you've got to. Squeeze him right now. Wow. Ten fingers operate. Can you move them all at once? Ten? Incredible, isn't it? Can you move just five on the right hand? Five on the left? Wonderful. Bless God. He's blessed you so abundantly. Why have you made me thus? You know, it took Nebuchadnezzar seven years in graduate school, but he did finally graduate. And boy, did he graduate. He was the valedictorian of his class. And I love that fourth chapter of Daniel. It was not written in Hebrew. It was written in Chaldean. And then it was translated into every language of the known earth to all peoples, nations, and languages. And it was sent abroad. And that man was not ashamed in the least degree to speak of the Most High God and to tell friends and enemies alike what the High God had done toward him. He did it in the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar. It is a wonderful passage of Scripture. I could never tire of reading it. I hope you don't tire of reading it. And he gets to the end and he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar. And he describes blessing the Most High God. This earth has never seen a dictator despot like Nebuchadnezzar. There have been wannabes, but none of them had power and authority like Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled over all the nations of the earth. Other men have tried to rule, and their efforts have only lasted for a couple of years. Nebuchadnezzar did rule. Whom he will, he put up, and whom he will, he put down. If he didn't like you, he would simply have you chopped in pieces and your house turned into a pile of dung. He would have your house bulldozed and a big pile of dung put at your address so that everyone would know that you are a stinking corpse in the ground because he destroyed you for not liking his new religion. You want to talk about separation of religion and state? Nebuchadnezzar could come up with his own religion any time. What a man he was. What a king he was. What a glorious... All the nations of the earth were fed under that huge tree that he saw in his dream. But there was a watcher and a holy one. And I hope you will never forget that they are called holy ones. The holy angels of God that came down and said to that king, because you don't know that God gave you this kingdom and God gave you your brilliance and God gave you your light and He gave you your understanding and He gave you your authority and you are His servant and He's given you the kingdoms of the earth. You're going to have seven years in graduate school. Oh, Lord, be praised. That's my God. Oh, you know, then you then you see a picture of Jesus standing, begging at some door. Are you kidding me? What Bible are you reading? What a difference. What a difference. That long-haired, hermaphrodite, John Lennon look-alike, Charles Manson, stinking hippie. You say you're speaking disrespectfully. Yes, I am. About the Roman Catholic caricature of Jesus of Nazareth. That isn't the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible has a different color hair. What color is it? I need help. White. And his eyes, are they brown? Blue? Or a flame of fire? What's coming out of his mouth? A flaming sword. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? 
The apostles arguing without quoting directly from Isaiah 45, 9 and 10 that I read to you. And he, he just proves it by its absurdity. He doesn't soften the doctrine. He doesn't explain the doctrine. He just blows off the questioner and his question. Verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay? He illustrates it a little more specifically of a particular kind of former of things. And a particular kind of formed thing. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Authority or right to make whatever kind of an object the potter wants to make. He sits there and hits the electrical switch for his spinning wheel and he reaches into his bucket of muck and he pulls up some of that muck and slaps it down on that spinning wheel and he can make whatever he wants. Like a brother stood in this pulpit last Lord's Day, he can make a chamber pot or your porcelain pony in your bathroom. And he can also make a honey pot. And if you're really wise, you know that that chamber pot was called a honey pot. You can make a honey bear out of your clay. You can make a man with two hands. You can make a man with no hands. You can make a man with four hands. And the man with no hands, two hands or four hands, doesn't have a right to ask the potter, what are you doing? I've only, I don't have any hands. Or why'd you give me two extra? Half not the potter. Power over the clay of the same lump. My fourth little parentheses to you, when it says of the same lump, includes our common state of condemnation in Adam. Paul does not raise this point or any other here to soften his blow against the question. The granting of mercy, listen to me, I'm in the parentheses, The granting of mercy to vessels of mercy assumes those vessels needed and required mercy. We consider Romans 5.8, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us and other verses like it to indicate God viewed us as condemned sinners. There, as soon as you enter into the theological debates of this world and of Calvinists versus Arminians, the Arminians give up quickly because they have no theology, but the Calvinists against the Calvinists end up in high Calvinists versus low Calvinists versus middle Calvinists. And I'm not talking about the five points of Calvinism. I am talking about the order of the decrees of God. Did God decree to elect and reprobate men with or without sin in view? That supralapsarianism versus sublapsarianism and other versions of lapsarianism. I'm going to tell you where your pastor has always gone on this subject and subjects like it. Though he is somewhat, maybe a little able to consider some of these arguments, I want to stick with Scripture. Because once we leave Scripture, we can wander off into the abyss of human explanation for things divine. Here's the text, Psalm 131.1, and this is what I would tell anyone that tries to pin me down, whether I'm supralapsarian or sublapsarian, or whether our church is. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Is that a great text? Sweet. Listen, the Lord's got an answer for everything if you'll just follow Him and humble yourself before Him. They can get as learned as they want to and they can coin all these theological terms that they want to to keep themselves in a trade and a business. We're going to stick with Scripture. We want to be the babes of Christ. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now it's settled before you believe it. But if you believe it, it settles it for you. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And that's what we do right here with this passage when it says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardens in the 18th verse. We just believe it. Could I give you three sermons or 13 sermons on God hardening men through the Bible and tell you what degree of that and what percentage of that and what source of that is from the man and what degree of that percentage of it and source of that is from God? Could we work our way through the entire Bible? If you want to work through some of that, then go look at the dominion of God because we've already done it before. But I'm not going to do it here because the apostle didn't do it. Right. And I love the apostle's approach right here because it just thrills me. 
There are vessels of honor prepared for glory. Is a potter able to take the same lump of clay and make one vessel honorable? A honey bear for the kitchen. A wonderful dish or pot for the china cabinet. And to make a chamber pot as well. Is he able to do that? Is the chamber pot going to scream because they weren't made a decorative dish for the china cabinet? Never. They're just clay. And we're supposed to remember that we are just clay. That is the whole purpose of these metaphors here. We are but clay. And we are clay, literally. We are dust of the earth. Breathed into our nostrils was the breath of life from God. And we are 70% water. We are clay. And every time the Spirit passes out of one of our bodies, if you will take the time to get close to it and try to manipulate that clay, it has changed so much without that animating Spirit. The next three verses are going to tell us that this potter, and he's going to bring the election of men to be the children of God or not, the election of men to heaven or not, He's going to bring it to some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles in the next three verses, 22 through 24. The apostle is going to tell us that this potter is willing to make some vessels to dishonor, vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. I'm not going to go to any parentheses for you. You should already know. And in the 23rd verse, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. These are vessels of honor. The potter, as he's made humanity, and there's seven billion of us on this earth right now, has chosen to show mercy and compassion to some, making them vessels of honor and vessels of mercy, as the passage describes, a four prepared into glory, meaning that our preparation began in eternity when we were chosen in Christ for eternal glory and when the, the building project in heaven started, as the Bible explains it to us prepared from the foundation of the world. And then there are vessels of dishonor, called also vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and God is willing to show His wrath and His power in them. Even us. However, the 24th verse says to the church at Rome, Gentiles and Jews, even us, we're vessels of mercy, we're vessels of honor, we're we're a four prepared unto glory, even us, whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That little preposition of, meaning it wasn't all the Jews. There was an election in Israel, like that sixth verse said, and there's an election among the Gentiles. Praise God. We're in the election. Let's make our calling and election sure. Let's exalt the Lord our God and humble ourselves at His footstool and His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. He will take vengeance on our inventions though He will forgive us, and Jesus Christ will deliver us in that day. But let us be holy, for He is holy. May Jesus Christ and His Father our God be praised by this preaching. Amen. Amen.